Hi, everyone. Greetings. <laughs> Hi, everyone, and welcome to um, Zita's Healthy Beginnings World of Women podcast. Today is July 11th. Can you believe that? Um, July is on the run. And um, this evening, Hi, we have my friend joining us all the way from um, Canada. <laughs> and and uh, we're glad she's here with us. And um, we've already shared um, the wonderful work she does and she's still doing in Canada. Um, she is an accomplished woman and uh, I'm going to let her kind of, you know, share with us more of what she does. Uh, where she's coming from, what her visions are, what actually motivates her um, on a daily basis to do what she does. And um, we're always thankful for the opportunity that we're getting from the Disability Channel and the um, Transform You and the Park. Um, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to reach our audience uh, with our message. And that is the message of um, good news, health, um, getting all the access that women and children need in the global world. And um, also talking about what is going on in our environment, individual lives, families, and communities. So without further ado, let me um, introduce you to Dr. Cheryl Okoli, uh, please. Come in and share with the rest of us. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me to begin with. It's an honor and a privilege um, to be here. Um, <laughs> that's quite the big question you asked of me um, in terms of all the things you would like me to share, but I think maybe I can share it in the form of a story format, and maybe that might help from our, okay. Okay. Okay then, so first and foremost, let me start about my origins, if that's helpful. Okay, so I am actually, I am a Canadian citizen born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, but did not grow up in Canada. I grew up on three continents. So I was about two and a half years old when I left Winnipeg and went back to Nigeria. I said back to Nigeria because that's where my parents were originally from and lived there for about nine years. So my childhood was spent in Nigeria and then we moved to the Middle East and I was there for about seven years. So all of my teen years were spent there and then came back to Canada basically to go to university. So I share that background because all of that plays an integral part in forming who I am. So moving like that and on top of that, when I was in Qatar, I actually went to a Pakistani school. So I was exposed to different cultures in the Middle East. So the Arab culture, Pakistani culture, a little bit of the Indian culture. And in that school, in the Pakistani school, I had to be quite independent because there were some subjects that were more aligned with either their language or the religion, which didn't align with me. So I, when I said didn't align, well, I couldn't speak Urdu fluently, so I can't take any course in that. So anyway, quite a long story short. So that made me very independent. Um, my family come from a background that believes strongly in education. One thing my dad said that stayed with me till today is study 
to gain knowledge and not to pass exam. And that has stayed with me. And then from my mom, I would say my mom really instilled my spiritual foundations. So now here I am back in Canada. I actually believe it or not wanted to be a dancer. But my parents were like, like, no, there's no future in that. <laughs> but then I also like to teach. And my mom knew that I had a knack for a natural inclination to teach and then she's like what about nursing you can teach and also help people at the front lines I wasn't really convinced to be honest with you because she came from a nursing background but eventually I thought you know what I think I'll go with that so I started nursing so my foundation is nursing and I knew that I would not be a frontline nurse I just knew that somehow that I would either end up in community so with time when I, was, I just finished my fourth year. Well, it was my fourth year practicum. I chose the operating room. Now you're like the operating room. Well, the operating room is kind of like acute care, but not really. There's something different and unique about the operating room. So I was, so I graduated and guess what? Uh, when I went to nursing school, it was New Brunswick. So straight from Qatar to New Brunswick from nursing school, moved to Calgary um, a year after I graduated. And then basically, I'd like to say my ticket to Calgary, Alberta, was the operating room course. Because you can't just graduate from the operating room and start working. The, sorry, you can't just graduate from nursing school and work in the operating room. You need extra education. So at that point in time, there were only two areas, two places I could find in Canada that offer that extra course, if you will. And somehow I happened upon a course being offered in Calgary, Alberta. And I got in. They actually paid us as opposed to me paying for it. So I thought that was destiny, part of destiny. So I said that was my ticket out here, but I believe there's a greater cause for me to end up in Calgary. That was just my ticket out here. So kind of long story short, I was in the operating room for 10 years. And during those 10 years, I um, knew I wanted to do my master's. So I went back to uh, for graduate school, did it online. So you might have heard of Walden University, perhaps. And mm. I wanted it to be, I didn't want it to be too clinically focused. So my master's was in leadership and management. It was actually nursing, but the specialty was leadership and management. Mm. So I graduated with that. So at that point in time, when it came to my capstone project, now this will get you to where I am right now, hopefully. <laughs> I made a promise to myself and to God. And what was the promise? I promised that if ever I had a chance to empower people to deal with conflict resolution, I would. And why? Sadly, throughout my career till then, I hadn't seen conflict being dealt with appropriately. And what do I mean by that? Conflict can be constructive or destructive. But sadly, people automatically put the negative lens to it. So I was sadly at the brunt of some destructive conflict, but I decided to spin it around. So my capstone project ended up being in conflict resolution. And I felt I was able to fulfill that promise in the sense that it ended up being a manual that was published. Hmm. The publisher found the value and I'm grateful and humbled by that. Now, fast forward, uh, here I am. During those 10 years I mentioned I was in the operating room, I went back to, for my graduate studies, and I thought I wasn't really using my master's. I was very, 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 very restless. So I decided to try teaching at the university for one year. I didn't mind it. So I was a nursing practice instructor 
for one year. And I liked it, but I thought that wasn't really where my home would be, if you will. And I remember one of my brothers asking the question, what do you want to do? And I remember saying, I want to be a clinical nurse specialist. I want to use my master's degrees. I want to be challenged. <laughs> you know the saying, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> so that very same year, I said that. And that would have been the beginning of 2014. I said that. Then behold, a job did open up. And I was able to use my master's as a clinical nurse specialist. Mm. And it ended up being in the home care department. So for those who may not know what I mean, so think of the healthcare industry having different departments or branches. So you have acute care, you have community care, you have home care, you have long-term care. So the home care department, so basically healthcare providers going into the home. So it could be professionals like nurses, physiotherapists, social workers going to the home. And my specific specialty was dementia, so dementia care, okay? So it was definitely very challenging, but in a good way as well. So the role of the clinical nurse specialist is all about leadership, education, research, evaluation, advancing nursing practice, right? So it was a leadership role, right? So I really enjoyed it. I really, really did enjoy it. Don't get me wrong, there were challenges, more so from more of an interpersonal versus a client care. But what I loved was the opportunity to be a change agent at a systems level. So whenever I had an opportunity to write proposal to improve the quality of life of the patients we serve, the families, the clients we serve, or employees as a whole, because for me, I like to look at things from a holistic lens, so the physical, mental, social, cultural, plus a micro and macro level. So I'm all about systems. Where are the gaps? If there are gaps, how can we bridge the gaps? How can we prevent gaps from happening, okay? So I was in that role for three years. And before the three years were up, I knew I was gonna pursue my doctorate. Now, I have two passions, healthy workplaces and from a clinical lens, empowering the well basically raising public awareness for women living with symptomatic uterine fibroids so in 2014 the same year i got that job as a clinical nurse specialist my business was founded shalom eagles wings was founded and it was found because again i saw the gaps in the care of women living with uterine fibers i believe in early detection leads to early intervention leads to decreased suffering so that's how my business was birthed so i was providing one-on-one -on -one consultation and mind it was in his infancy stage so i had two things now the cns job clinical nurse specialist job that opened up and my business had found it you can't do two things very well so the business had to be on the back burner to be quite honest i mean i had a few consultations with clients but i put most of my energy into the clinical nurse specialist job okay now fast forward <laughs> when it came to, uh, for the time for my doctorate i was like do i run with conflict resolution themed program or do i run with the uterine fibroids women's health Mm -hmm. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to run with conflict resolution themed in the sense that I'm going to pursue a non-clinical doctorate. I ended up 
graduating, and thank God, with a doctorate of health administration. Now, when you think about what that entails, it cuts across all disciplines. It's all about leadership and systems transformation, the list goes on, right? At a high scale, right? And policies, right? So I ran with that. And my business, Shalom Eagles Wings, I said of being for women only, basically bloomed to now encompass me providing consultation services in, th in things like strategic management, risk management, quality improvement. So as an example, Shalom Eagles Wings, which is my business, think of it as threefold. Consultation, advocacy, and empowerment. Under the consultation now is either the clinical lens of the women, uterine fibroids, or I like to cater to executives or business owners or managers to help them basically optimize their businesses and their organizations in strategic management, risk management, the list goes on. Under advocacy, my latest initiative is catering to healthcare providers who are burned out or perhaps have experienced bullying and harassment. You ask why? Well, healthcare providers are forever pouring themselves, giving themselves to everyone. But my question is who takes care of them? And I mean holistically. I'm not talking about, oh, um, employee recognition, lunch. That is good, but it's not enough. So this business is called Renata Wellness and Recreation Retreat. Its inaugural opening will be September 23rd, 2023. And the original model of this business is supposed to be a three day, three nights. So think of it as having light learning. So courses or a class like conflict resolution and that will be organization development. Why? Because we want to empower employees to be positive change agents wherever they are. There's gonna be group counseling, because like I mentioned, these are individuals that are either burned out or at risk of burnout. It's an opportunity for them to gather and chat in a group sessions, and that way they can realize that perhaps they're not alone. Because one of the worst things is for someone to think they're going on a journey on their own, and those could be false perceptions, right? Okay. And then there's going to be lots of recreation, lots of recreation. There's going to be dance classes, massage, <laughs> and more, and food. Because think of it, again, I mentioned it caters physical, mental, social, cultural, spiritual. So all those domains will be addressed at this retreat. And then last but not least, empowerment. So remember, Shalom Eagles Bank Consultation, Advocacy, and Empowerment. So under empowerment, I'm also a certified conflict resolution coach as well. And I'm really honored and privileged and an organization by the name of Win-Win Women. And this is why when I just stop and think about it, one of the things that said was I want to influence change, not just at my community level, like in Alberta, nationally and globally. Some people might be like, that's such a high, tall order of an ambition. But this organization by the name of Win Win Women, they were the ones who reached out to me. They found me. And one of the questions the founder asked me when an opportunity arose, they're like, if you were to have your show, what would you talk about? <laughs> For me, it was a no-brainer. <laughs> because again, that promise I made, right? And I liked the autonomy 
but it's always about i look at things from interpersonal values systems process tasks and when appropriate i might integrate the women's health but mostly it's all about how do we address conflict constructively be it an issue that has to do with processes tasks different topics in the healthcare industry and how can we address them so sometimes i inject an infusion of quality improvement strategies as well on my show as well. So I think I'll pause there for now. So that's kind of like what I'm doing and what I've been involved. Always looking for more clients as well. Right, right, right. right. Wow. Well, that's a lot that you do and you know that. So I am so excited for you, for all that you've been doing in this whole launch that you're going to be having in September. So, and that's actually uh, for our audience out there to know, uh, please, I would like you to also share your, you know, information. So if people are, you know, looking for you, I know they can always reach out to you through us, but if you share your information, people can get, you know, close, um, connected to you directly. So, and that, that is really awesome. You know, one thing about women that I've come to realize is that women are change makers from the grassroots. I mean, like change agents, you, you, you talk about it and we live it, you know, like it's a natural thing for women. And most women do this unannounced, you know, uh, they're so unassuming about it. And uh, that is why also they have been taken for granted in most places um, that a lot of what women do in our world today, beginning with our families, they go unrecognized. They're all taken for granted. And I always encourage the women to stand up for your own rights, for take responsibility for who you are and share it, share it. Because honestly, if you don't, nobody does. You know, so I like the idea that you had, you know, the conflict uh, resolution um, that you talked about and, and you have seen it firsthand. And when we work as nurses, there's gonna be conflict all the time because you're working with other people. You're also dealing with patients yep. um, and their families. So guess what, we're all human. And there's gonna be that tendency to run into one conflict or the other. It's totally human, but the question is, how do we resolve it? And I'm glad that you have the expertise in so many different levels that you want to help everybody, you know, every single person, be it individuals, be it families, and even um, the, we're talking about um, entities and, and we're talking about all this uh, um, huge now we have all the um, global uh, technology that is really gripping everybody. And the question is, who do you turn to in times of conflict? You know, who helps you out? Mm -hmm. Who tells you, sit down, take a deep breath, let's figure this out. You know, there are few people in today's world who can do that. Mm -hmm. And you are one of them. So I am so thankful that you're doing this and that you're just being out there you know, reaching out to anybody and everybody who needs your care. And that, that's a lot of us. That's almost all of us <laughs> because conflict, like I said, is a natural thing. 
question is how do we deal with it how do we really handle it positively so that it doesn't spill over mm-hmm. and and destroy the whole system because that's what happens mm-hmm. the whole structure gets destroyed it takes just a little a little uh, conflict that is you no know, badly handled mm-hmm. before the whole pulls down the whole system and um, when we talk about women we are all sensitive very sensitive to a point that as nurses, I think we are even sometimes over sensitive uh, that we tend to take everything in, you know, and that eats up a lot of us, you know, physically, emotionally, and otherwise. So for you being out there trying to help us take care of this, for me, it's really a huge thing. Now, since you've started, I know you've been doing this also even though you're going to do it in a global, in a, you know, like as a, as a, um, your organization, you're going to be doing it as it should. But I know that before now, you have, you know, dealt with conflict on individual level, local level, and even family level. What has that been for? How has that been for you? Hey, it's not fun. Again, it depends on your perspective, okay? So one of the things I would like to leave with people, the audience, is a mnemonic. My original five is of conflict resolution mnemonic. And the reason why I'm saying that, it will help answer your question. Mm -hmm. So the very first A is assess. Mm -hmm. And why you ask me, how has that been for me? So basically, I had to assess this conflict situation how important is it? Is it the right time to deal with it? Is it worth dealing with it? If I say yes, it is, then I need to approach it. So that's the second ace approach. So the question now is how do you approach the individual? Okay, do you approach the individual alone? or with somebody, because in the workplace, for instance, depending on who it is, if there's a power imbalance, for instance, right? But some, you might need to come with a union. If it's the family setting, again, depending on how your relationship is with that family member, you might feel okay going by yourself. But in addition to how you approach, the timing is also important, Mm -hmm. right? I don't know if you've heard of the whole halt mnemonic. It's not mine, but basically it's all about if you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, don't deal with it. Exactly. So if you feel you've passed the test on all of those (laughs) halts, you've halted, H-A-L-T, halted, then you approach, right? Next, you want to analyze with the person, okay? Analyze what is going on here. Brainstorm together. Okay. And then after brainstorming, you assert, you assert politely, share your perspective, listen to the other person's perspective, try not to be defensive, defensive, because the minute we start defense, becoming defensive, barriers will just go up. Okay. And then you want to, so we've talked about assessing, approaching, analyzing, asserting, the last is agree to disagree. You may or may not come to this point, but the reality is that there's some conflict situations you cannot see eye to eye, but the difference is you need to be respectful of each other, be able to offer the metaphorical handshake, the onus is on the other person to take it or not take it, but you've offered it, right? Metaphorically, right? Or sometimes literal. So my point is this, so how has it been for me? So usually those steps is what I've taken when I remember, 
the right. reality is we're human and we have egos. Mm-hmm. Right? So I need to, I've tried to stop and ask myself, what side of the coin do I want this conflict to end on? Just like a coin has heads and tails, I ask myself, do I want this conflict to end on a constructive manner or on a destructive manner? And it's just seconds to make that decision, right? Because we've all heard about how you made someone feel what they remember about you. So I have to make that split decision. So how has that been for me in the workplace? It was really hard. There have been times when I disappeared crying my eyes out. And, but again, one thing you battle with, sometimes it's your calling mm-hmm. <laughs> or your ministry to change it. Right. So I shed lots of tears over the years, but, I've, but I'm beginning to realize it was all part of the molding process, the shaping process for the work I'll be doing right now. How can you really empathize with people if you not walk the journey? You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, right. Yes. So so I've answered your question a little bit in the workplace setting. How has that been for me? Mm-hmm. And again, it depends on your environment. What right. I mean to so the workplace, if you have a toxic environment, sadly, it's just destructive mm-hmm. conflict. Mm-hmm. But if you have a psychological safe environment, and what I mean by that is an environment where you feel comfortable sharing concerns without fear of being penalized, oppressed, boycotted, stigmatized, and all the things, all those destructive behaviors. If you have a conducive environment, and especially if you have a superior that has a good listening ear, respectful, and is willing to take feedback, either or be it constructive right? That's when change can happen, right? So there came a point in times when I felt hurt, and there were times when I didn't feel hurt, but the onus was upon me. I'm like, you know what? For my clear conscience, my ethical and legal obligation, I need to report certain things if I need to report. I need to, but then I always ask, how can I be a solution? Hence, I mentioned earlier, I would come up with proposals and submit it to senior leadership or my management. It's up to them what they did with it. Sometimes they went with it. Sometimes they just ignored it. I'm like, you know what? I've done my part. <laughs> That's all I can do is do, do my Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Wow. Thank you so much. Yeah. I love that systematic approach to, you know, conflict. And like you said, um, conflict is natural. It's normal. Um, it's how we handle it. And there are different layers to that, mm-hmm. you know, in, in handling it. And um, it involves everybody. Once there is that conflict to resolution, mm-hmm. it's it gonna get take everybody for that, you know, from top to bottom. And that's Absolutely. where the yeah, that's where the challenge lies because not everybody is ready at the same time for you know to resolve conflict. And that's yes. what leaders on too. And then some people take their time. Others are like. They have developed tough skin or a forgiven, unforgiven heart mm-hmm. that it becomes a challenge. Sure. So that's that's one of the huge challenges I have seen in healthcare. Um, I haven't worked elsewhere, but well, I have worked like in the church. It is still the same thing. But mm-hmm. in healthcare, why it is so critical is that we're dealing with people physically as well as mentally. Mm-hmm. You know, so whereas in other settings is different. I always talk to somebody, um, one of my friends, she's an engineer. And uh, whenever we talk, one thing I say to her is, it's easier to deal with a structure than to (laughs) 
Humans, yeah, because you have to be careful. You know, it's very delicate. If your building comes down, thank goodness, maybe there's nobody there. But mm -hmm. even in the healthcare industry, you're dealing with people physically mm -hmm. and you might help them physically or mentally or both. You know, so we all have to be aware of that. And then um, another thing you're doing that I know that is very peculiar to women is this um, thing about the, you know, symptomatic fibroid that some women, you know, have. And for me, it is very critical because I'm beginning to see a lot. I mean, it used to be like the past 10 years or even 15, you didn't get a whole lot of that. But in the past 15 years, a lot of women, even younger uh, women are coming up with this, you know, symptoms. And I'm, I'm like, oh my goodness. It's, and it, it's also interfering with their, whether it's marriage life or, you know, or even the social life and everything. And some people are having ver various uh, symptoms, some crazy symptoms that you never heard about, you know, in, in the last uh, uh, 10 years or so. So I'm glad that you're also there trying to help with women. Um, Take that journey, you know, is something that we know when it comes up, there's a process to that as well. So now I would like you to share with us if that's possible, um, if there are cases that you have, um, you know, dealt with, um, the ones that ended up well and the ones that didn't really end up well, if you don't mind. Sure. So, okay. So, okay. So, I guess my journey with this began, I'll say professionally in the operating room. So I mentioned I was there for 10, I worked in the operating room for 10 years yeah. and my specialty was general surgery. And I did spend quite a bit of time in gynecology as well. So with the uterine fibroids, um, again, going back to my motto, early detection leads to early intervention, which leads to decreased suffering. By the time they're in the operating room, obviously they're symptomatic. Yeah. And when I talk about symptomatic, so when you talk about symptomatic, you think about physical and psychological. Mm -hmm. So physical could be the menorrhagia, heavy bleeding. Mm -hmm. It could be perhaps some infertility issues. It could be pain. It could be bloating. It could, mm -hmm. okay. So that's physical as an example. Psychological, it could be depression. Anxiety, fear of, um, I mean, imagine, especially for someone who lives with menorrhagia, heavy bleeding, they have to choose their garments carefully. They have to organize their social activity around their periods, their menstruation cycles. Sometimes they miss work. These have psychological effects on them, longstanding, right? And maybe financial, depending on where you work, not everyone has sick time, right? Or and if they're not, if they're coming from a lower socioeconomic status, maybe they can't even afford the products, right? So what do some of the ladies that I dealt with when I worked with them um, face to face? Um, so again, for them, it had come to the point in time where they were basically desperate, and they maybe they just happened to hear about me. So some of them, I ended up seeing them just once. I didn't quite see the follow up because the model of my practice. Uh, I haven't been focusing too much right now, even though now I'm going back into the research and trying to connect with organizations that want 
that basically I'm saying to them, we need to implement a standardized screening protocol, early screening protocol. So that's what I've taken up and I've been in talks with a particular organization in the past few weeks now. But anyway, but going back to your question, so when they came to me, the ones that I can recall, it was either um, they were hearing whispers that the hysterectomy would be the next thing for them, right? But the reality is, it's not always a hysterectomy is the last case or the go-to modality of treatment because the way I, when I teach and provide my consultation, I come from an integrative medicine lens, okay? So I talk about the medical, surgical and alternative medicine. So with medical, it's usually things to do with, um, well, the first one's actually called wait and see basically to see would they grow, would they cause pain, would they cause symptoms. And then medications, different classifications of medications. It could be the Lupron to shrink it, but it's hormonal. So once you stop the Lupron, it's going to grow again. Right. And then just the pain control or medications to decrease the amount of bleeding, for instance. And then surgical, you have, now there are newer modalities people don't really are not really aware of. Some are not really aware of. And this could be things like UAE, which is the uterine hydroembolization. So basically injecting, I'll just use the word particles into the uterine artery. The key is, or the premise is, or the rationale is, by doing that, you're um, preventing the blood flow to the Yeah. So basically starving the fibers. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> And then there's UFE, not to be confused with the UAE. UAE is uterine atrine embolization. UFE, uterine fibroid embolization. So basically, directly inhibiting the blood flow to the fibroid itself. And then there are other techniques. So these two are less invasive, okay? And recovery time is usually less than a week, less blood flow loss or anything like that and of course you have the myomectomies so there were some who had already had a myomectomy before and sadly the chances of recurrence is high right. when you had a right. but guess what though one of the latest research which i kind of just shake my head and laugh over 10 years ago in 2012 i came up with a protocol that i submitted and my protocol had to do with vitamin d back then and people weren't very receptive but now as per a project in the States called the White Dress Project. I highly recommend this organization to people. They're a group of researchers, patient advocates, pretty much everyone involved, not just researchers, but also interventionists, doctors. They either have had a lived experience of uterine fibroids and are vested in research and treatment. So as recent as of last week, one of the doctors is undergoing a research with his group, and guess what the intervention is? Vitamin D and an EGCG. I just smiled. I'm like, really? That's I what know, right? <laughs> right? So that's what they're working on. So right now, they're not re they're not recommending. It's still in the research phases, but they're encouraging people to do that. Why? Because again, going back to what I said with the myomectomy, there's a high chance of recurrence. So they recommend. This, what I just mentioned, the vitamin D and EGCG, which is basically um, an extract of caffeine, mm -hmm. they recommend that as a primary intervention. Because when you go into surgery and medical, these are secondary and tertiary level treatment. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the supplements and vitamin D is more sort of a primary. So they are recommending if you choose or have to have a myomectomy, 
go on to this treatment of the vitamin D and the EGCG treatment is what they're recommending. Okay, so yeah, so um, so with the women, like I said, for a few of them, it was just a one-time thing of initial consultation. So how my consultation works is one hour, get a comprehensive history. But before they come to me, they've submitted their ultrasound results because I want to see what layer of right. the of the uterus the fibroid yes. is because it determines different kind of treatments, right? Mm -hmm. And again, I don't tell them what to do. I want to ask, what are your What's your desire? Do you want to have children in the past, in the future? So I kind of have my own algorithm I kind of use. And um, yeah, so based on what they wanted during that one hour, the first half hour is kind of like a history, comprehensive history taken. The remaining half hours more teaching and answering any of your questions. Right. So yeah, so yeah. So usually like again, when they come to me, it's usually when they're feeling very hopeless hmm. to some extent. And then I've met some other parties who were like, you know what? We wish we knew someone like you. I wouldn't have had it had a hysterectomy. I know. Yeah. But then you know the other treatments. And I didn't even mention there's another one called the magnetic uh, MG, something like magnetic resonance, no magnetic imaging ultrasound resonance, something like that. But the key is you're in a machine, your uh, your uterus, your fibers are mapped out, and laser beams. Are used oh, to be okay. yeah. right. yeah. Yes, exactly. So there's yeah. that as well. Again, less time for recovery because myomectomy and hysterectomy sit minimum six to eight weeks minimum mm -hmm. for recovery. For some women, it might be longer. And of course, yeah. this chance of blood loss is always. And of course, I didn't mention the laparoscopic right. procedure. Right. And now this robotic coming up and all that. So there's new interventions thankfully mm -hmm. but then again on the okay so going back to the women now in the alternative medicine or alternative protocols i do teach about diets because the I one consensus, that. Yeah. Yes, the <laughs> one consensus between conventional and non-conventional is the estrogen dominance mm -hmm. that's consensus across right so i teach ladies about decreasing estrogen dominance by decreasing xenoestrogens. You might say xeno, you might say xeno, potato, potato, mm -hmm. but the word means foreign sources of estrogen coming into your body. So it could be through the forms of chemicals like parabens. Mm -hmm. That's why people of color, for instance, yes. chocolate-hued people, there's been that correlation. I'm not saying it's causation. Now let's use the medical terminologies. <laughs> correlation, not causation. <laughs> of the relaxers, the chemical health products, correlation mm -hmm. of the growth of fibroids and all of that, okay? Either I must say it's a new case of fibroids or the fibers are growing when they were already pre-existing, right? But nevertheless, mm -hmm. I tell them to stay away from foreign sources of estrogen if they can help it. Stay away from the whites, as in white bread, white flour. Go for the whole grains. You want the brown stuff. You want your cruciferous vegetables. Um, the word cruciferous, believe it or not, has to do with the formation of the flowers of these plants. It's like a cross, hence cruciferous. So your broccoli and all these things. Sometimes you can get supplements. There's some supplements you can get that are hormone balancing. But again, be careful if you want to get pregnant. Don't go on this right. stuff right you have to be careful 
but there are some people who've gone on it when they were pregnant. But again, discuss with your primary provider. You must let them know what supplements you're taking at all times. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, honestly. Um, and one thing I have uh, noticed that with the people of color and, uh, and with fibroid is, and some people are now thinking that it could be hereditary. But the thing is, Food, like we say, well, especially when you're talking about geographical location and what people eat, you know, food always has always been the culprit in food and other products, you know, that women take. And I know that majority of women um, in the past have depended a lot in the natural food, you know, and natural products. That has not been the case in the you know recent years, and that's what is escalating, in my own opinion. You know what we're seeing these days. Well, and, let me, okay, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. Here, okay, two things. It is hereditary. It can be hereditary. There's a strong correlation that it is hereditary. So that I agree with. Second, the diet. I agree with you. Diet plays a huge part. But let me provide another perspective. Mm -hmm. In Africa, for instance, most of the food, not all, tend to be quote unquote organic. Yet you have, what I mean the word organic, in North America, when we say organic or in Europe, you need a certification. What I'm trying to say is that the food usually doesn't have hormones in it. Hormones, yeah. by the way, and antibiotics are foreign sources of estrogen. So those will be an example of xenoestrogens. But going back to some countries in Africa, those from Caribbean backgrounds, they still have a high incidence of uterine fibroids. Now, based on my research, you could ask question, why is that? Well, some research is saying it's because of low incidence of vitamin D. Now, people are like, wait a minute, the sun is blazing. <laughs> But yeah, it's the rationale. It's one of the rationales. This beautiful dark skin melanin might prevent chocolate hued people. I love to say the word chocolate hued. No offense to anyone, but I love it. <laughs> might prevent chocolate hued people from getting cancer. Yes. So guess what though? It acts like a barrier to prevent mm -hmm. us from absorbing the vitamin right. D. Hence right. the correlation with the new research as the vitamin D deficiency and the correlation with uterine fibers formation. Hence what I quoted earlier, this researcher is recommending this vitamin D. So they were find, mm -hmm. they're finding that chocolate hue people can be deficient in vitamin D. Right. So I highly recommend that women, again, going back to what you said, younger, Yes, the evidence research shows in chocolate-hued people, the incidence of fibroids and severity comes much younger. So we're talking about 20s mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and more severe, mm -hmm. okay, as compared to other ethnicities. So my recommendation, honestly, is as soon as you can screen women, especially if you, especially if you have a family history, screen mm -hmm. your boys. Once, because fibroids only occur in childbearing women. So that means post Mernak, right. by the when you have your first period, that's when fibers will happen. And by the way, if you were to have 100 women in the room, at least 25 of them will have uterine fibroids. But the question is, 
are they symptomatic? So one in four, some statistics say one in three. I like to use the one in four statistic. One in four women will have fibroids. But the question is, is it symptomatic? And by symptomatic, is it causing issues? And fibroids can be a size of a pea mm-hmm. or a watermelon, okay? So again, if they're not causing you any issues, just let them be. Right. Right. Why fix it when it's not broken? Exactly. But, but we do need to raise public awareness, especially mm-hmm. not mostly in chocolate-hued women yes. with other ethnic backgrounds. Believe me, the Arabs as well. Do you know why the Arabs as well, especially some Arabs in the Muslim country, they cover with what? They are biased. Right. Yeah. So they're not absorbing mm-hmm. vitamin D. So they're deficient yeah. in vitamin D, yeah. right? Okay. So again, when we critical thinking and targeting things like that, right? So raising public awareness for all, trying to elevate it for it to be an issue to be addressed at a legislation right. level. Level. Advocacy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when you're talking about the vitamin D, um, there was a study that was conducted here in Pittsburgh. Um Pittsburgh uh, is one of the cities in in the United States that really get very little sun. And we are talking about very little sun. We're talking about people of color living in this city. Can you imagine? And uh, we have, when I was doing a home visitation, um, I found that a lot of women, a lot of pregnant women were getting depression. And the study found that not only that we don't even have enough sun here, but for, for this population, they're not absorbing it that much. There we go. So they're getting depression, you know, and we are saying, oh, yeah, and mental health runs so high in this population. Why not? Mm-hmm. If people are depressed, you know. Some of them end up with postpartum, you know, depression, which even get escalated as soon as the woman has the baby. So, yeah, I think vitamin D, and and that was what they found, that every single woman in this place has to be on vitamin D because it helps. It's antidepressant. It's been proven to be an antidepressant as well. So here's the thing. Every chocolate-hued person in the Northern Hemisphere, so North America, Europe, minimum 2,000 international units, minimum, Mm -hmm. daily, daily. Now, if you have an incidence of fibroids, higher, okay? Mm. But for anyone that doesn't even have fibroids, regardless of morbidity, now going back to the whole depression thing, there is a condition called SAD, which stands for Seasonal Affect Disorder. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, and that's low vitamin D. So you mentioned Pittsburgh. Here in Canada, for example, there's Vancouver um, in British Columbia, which perpetually rains. I couldn't live there just because of the rain, <laughs> let alone that it's cloudy all the time. But even here in Calgary, when winters are long, people suffer from seasonal affect disorder. It's sad. They actually do. And they're learning, okay. So some people who talk to me, I'm like, okay, how's your vitamin D level? They're like, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. I just my supplement yeah and then seniors as well seniors are another yes. that need to be on vitamin d so i just say for seniors minimum 1000 minimum minimum mm-hmm. but if they take 2000 that's fine too as well but yeah so no mm-hmm. definitely vitamin d has its value and that's another thing 
speaking about legislation, so one thing that's a bone of contention amongst certain circles that chocolate hued is that historically vitamin D was one of the blood levels, blood work levels that could be mm -hmm. checked off. Well, the system is different in Canada versus United States. So we have, is, we're yeah. publicly funded. So if you were to okay. go to your family doctor for blood work, mm -hmm. he or she could easily just tick off or oh, check vitamin D levels. But about, a, I don't know how many years exactly, maybe five years or plus, you have to pay for it. Mm -hmm. I'm not, uh, do people have to, okay, there's a category of people who don't have to pay for it. They must belong to a, a list of certain morbidity that has to do with vitamin D deficiency. Then they can get it maybe free. But for everyone else that's not on that list, you have to pay to get that added for your blood work. So there was an advocacy group. I know someone in Ontario who was like, no, we people of color, um, well, she's the B word, no, not the B word you're thinking, the black word, black. I don't right, write. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So she did advocate at the legislative level that no, you guys really should let us have that. That's part of our lives. We're prone to uterine fibers, we're prone to this, da, 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 right? So, so far, I don't think they've reversed it, but she's got your attention. Let's put it that right. way. Good. So, yeah, right. because because it is the uterine fibers, but honestly, it's a, I think it's a public health emergency because when you calculate costs, not again, not just the financial cost of surgery, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but the cost again, mentally to these women, emotionally, psychology, physical, why you add all that, it's not worth it. Just do something, people, Absolutely. please, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, honestly, women have different layers of concerns, you know, that um, needed uh, attention, like last year but people are like you know taking their time and and sometimes i always say actually that when you're talking about the healthcare of anybody or somebody who is not sitting there at the table i don't think you're really gonna do a whole great job taking care of them the way they should have if they're given that opportunity you know, so when we look at our um, policymakers today, I'm talking about United States because that's where I live and I see what is going on. You look at the healthcare sector and then you look at all our policymakers, most of them have no clue of what you're talking about. You know, yet they are the ones really endorsing our policies. What do we expect? So I think as much as, much as possible, women have to get to that awareness and to the point of saying, you know what? We need to be at that dialogue table. Yeah, because if you're not there, whatever anybody decides for you, they're not gonna decide the best for you because they don't know what you're going through. They don't know what you're talking about. You know, so each time I hear, um, we're talking about maternal and child care, and then when the policy um, team comes out, and I see five men or six men and a woman. And I'm like, yeah, here we go. How does that work? You know? Well, no, you raise a very good point. So again, when you talk about the whole EDI, equity, no, what is it? Inclusion and diversity, equity, inclusion and diversity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, women being at the table. Again, okay. <laughs> Actually, it just made me think of a movie that I watched. And I recommend it to you guys. It's called Dr. G. 
Okay. It's, it's East Indian, but morals and very thought-provoking. So mm -hmm. basically, he was undergoing a gynecological rotation. He didn't want to. His first choice was orthopedic, but that's all that was available is gynecology. And his comeback as to why he wouldn't want it is like, he's not a woman. He doesn't have the women parts. How can he help the women? Now, mm -hmm. what he said, now I can see two schools of thought. One group could say, yeah, he's right. The other group was like, no, you don't have to be a woman to understand what women go through, mm -hmm. uh, which was where the movie was coming from. But eventually he flips his mind processes and thought processes and ended up being a very good gynecologist. But anyway, the point I'm sharing that is, yes, I do believe women should be at the table. But then we've also had wonderful gynecologists that are male as well. But nevertheless, in the true keeping of inclusion and diversity, yes, we should have women at the policymaking legislation levels, at the board levels. Mm -hmm. There are changes happening. But women at those tables need to be knowledgeable. Oh, yeah. Table, right? And I think that's where nurses actually, so that's in Canada, yeah. actually, when we talk about our nursing standards, like every year when nurses have to renew their registration, their yes. certain standards, yeah. you choose which one for your continued education development, if you will, there is a section for advocacy. So they're beginning to recognize some are beginning to recognize that nurses <laughs> can play a key role of advocacy, not just at the front lines with the patient in front of them, but at the population mm -hmm. level, at the macro right. level. And also it behooves nurses and their superiors and other sectors to understand that when a nurse speaks out, be it in the media or in a political forum, it's not whistleblowing. Mm -hmm. The intent is to make positive changes that will affect populations who right. have a right so there i believe there's a gap whereby there are some nurses who feel if they speak out they're going to be penalized or disciplined by either their organization or their regulators i think proper education needs to be done along those lines like even for me now speaking out and saying this once upon a time i, I don't lie maybe years ago i'll be like oh what would people think what would people think mm -hmm. but that's sometimes the beauty of having your own business you have right <laughs> but then again even if you were on, you are an employee. What is wrong in anything I have just said? Mm -hmm. That's why I mean, again, the education. So people don't feel fearful that if they say something, they're going to be penalized. Right. So yeah. there's work to be done along those lines as well. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. And talking about being penalized, if I speak up, it's not only something that is nurses thing, it's a women's thing as well. If you ask me, because I mean, dealing with women, even in their family levels, you find them being afraid, sometimes afraid of nothing, you know, but of the unknown <laughs> that sometimes they can't speak up for themselves. And that's what I keep saying that there's no way any woman can keep living life to the fullest living that way. No, it does not, you know, work out that way. But like you said, we need that awareness. We need to continuously encourage women to nudge them to really speak up for their own good. Because yes, we're women. Yes, we have a lot of uh, medical attention issues um, that needs to be you know, more than men. And we have to acknowledge that and have everybody to be on the same page with us, knowing that this is our reality. You know that this is our reality. So thank you so very much, Dr. Cheryl, for coming. 
I really appreciate this uh, session here. And I know that our audience, um, some of them are still putting their babies to sleep. Some are not really <laughs> available. But what I'm going to say here is that, please, if you have any questions, if you have any concerns, um, then you reach out to us. Uh, if you have personal requests for Dr. Okoli, please let us know. And please, did you put your uh, information on the chart so people can look at it? And uh, Emily, you can also help if you have- uh, I'll, uh, do that. I'll do okay. that. Okay. So what would you like me to put exactly? Uh, post your email address, website. Um, okay. Yeah, whatever you feel comfortable sharing with us would be great. So, Emily, do you have any comment or any other person on this call, on this uh, podcast? Any questions, comments, please? This is your time. Uh, this is uh, very interesting. Uh, nice to meet you, Cheryl. Uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, what's, uh, what's your most favorite thing about what you're doing? You know, that's a very, very, very good question. I'll say my most interesting thing is what for my show, how it's structured is once a month I have guests. So one of my most interesting things is basically networking with people globally, mm. get to learn who is who, and then just having those conversations with them. That's one of my favorite things. But on another note, actually the initiative I'm working on now, the retreat for healthcare providers, I'm really hoping people can buy in. There are lots of buy-in, but there could be much more. I just want people to come and just dine, so to speak, and have fun. <laughs> <laughs> I know you have a lot of gifts you bring to the world. I'm so thankful to God um, who that you were born because, I mean, you know, this is, this is really awesome. Yeah, it, it's not an easy task um, that you have things to do and you've embraced it with all your heart. So my prayer is that you get the grace and the blessings that you need to keep going because this is challenging, uh, but it's a noble call. It is um, something that the world needs at this time. So thank you so much for coming. And uh, we're gonna have you back soon also to get you know updates on all that you're doing and how they're going for you. Thank you. Thank you very much. This was an honor. And thank you for reaching out and finding me. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. And thank, thank you for the you. prayers. I appreciate the prayers. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. So for our audience, thank you all for being here with us. And always remember, it's every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, World of Women podcast. And I'm, you will agree with me that you've really enjoyed tonight's podcast. And I'll say to next week, stay safe and stay cool or stay warm if you're in Canada. <laughs> Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Coley, for coming. Thank you. It was my pleasure. <laughs> Have a good one. <laughs>